Hello, I'm Jim Irvin, and you're very welcome to another You're Not On The List, the podcast dedicated to forgotten albums and the people who love them. I'm joined this time by two excellent guests who are committed dwellers on the margins, one as a journalist and one as a performer. Maria McKee began her musical career fronting country punk band Lone Justice before releasing three increasingly brilliant solo albums for Geffen Records in the 1990s, culminating in Life is Sweet, one of the albums discussed on the most listened to episode of this very show. When that failed to catch fire as it deserved, she retreated from the mainstream, self-releasing and collaborating on film projects with her husband, until a late-breaking epiphany several years ago caused her to completely rethink her life, come out as pansexual, begin campaigning as a queer activist, especially for the trans community, and start making music with renewed vigour, 2019's La Vita Nuova being the first superb fruits of that turbulent time. Jo Kendall left school at 16 with no idea what she wanted to do, but eventually tapped into her love of music to become a DJ, indie gig and club promoter and a lecturer in the music business. But her main preoccupation since the turn of the century has been working at music magazines, starting as the office manager at Kerrang! and now valued contributor to Classic Rock, Record Collector, Electronic Sound magazine and the associate editor of Prog magazine, where she has worked since it launched in 2009. While there, she's taken tea with Robert Fripp, touched Ian Anderson's flute and asked Susie Quattro about what one wears under a leather catsuit. She lives in Hampshire where she feeds ducks, films bees and blasts Mastodon on the stereo. Welcome, welcome. Delighted you could both join us and, and thrilled, Maria, that you could be on because obviously you've had an album discussed on the show, uh, which we love. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. You're in LA at the moment. You've been living sort of bicontinentally for a while, haven't you? But I gather you've just decided to give up your place in London. Yeah, I just, um, I became very homesick for Los Angeles. And every time I would go to London for several months at a time, I felt exiled even though I have, you know, family there and work there, an incredible queer community and friends, my heart and soul are very much ingrained in Los Angeles. My great-grandmother was indigenous. She was of Tongva um, heritage, which is the indigenous folks in the L.A. County Basin. So my people have been in L.A. for like for over a thousand years. Oh, wow. And I live in my grandmother's house. It's a, it's an apartment complex that she bought in 1940. Oh, really? So, yeah. Yeah. I live in, in, in the top floor and then Jim lives downstairs. This is serious so, roots. It really is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, LA's taken a bit of a battering recently by all accounts. Trump and uh, wildfires and COVID have all taken their oh, toll. Oh, and the UK has not? <laughs> <laughs> No, I just uh, I just wondered how your particular part had survived. Yeah, there's more fires, um, but we've survived droughts and heat waves. They're getting worse, but uh, you know I'll be here when it's nothing but you know twisted rubble and ashes. You know, I, I realize that now. I'm not going anywhere. We're recording in a week where we've mostly been burying our former queen. Um, yes, yeah, it's like a, it's like an evil fairy tale. All of that. <laughs> Has any of that pomp and circumstance made it over to where you are? Is anyone interested in it in the US? Yes, but I mean, I, I sort of I skip those stories on my Instagram. <laughs> yes. One of the only ways I've been able to sort of live in London is to kind of blot out all of that because mm. I just find it so surreal. Joe, have you been uh, shedding a tear for Elizabeth too, or just uh, blasting Mastodon? 
Oh, still blasting Mastodon. Uh, but with an eye on this, I did get sucked into the coverage uh, on Monday because some of it is fairly fascinating and, uh, you know, it's been very, very carefully planned out. So it was the feat of planning that I was kind of absorbed with as much as anything else. Yes, I was watching it from a stage management point of view as well, saying, how the hell did they organise all this? If I had been in my 20s, I probably would have been sort of much more dismissive and railing. But you know, as life goes on and as you, I don't know, I think I might have developed a little bit more empathy and I've probably gone a bit more soft than mm. I used to be. And and I see what it means to other people. We, we've had some things happening over COVID, people that we knew who we've lost. And uh, generally I've seen this, the outpouring of grief isn't just about the Queen, it's about many other things as well. So I kind of go, oh, I think I'm going to let you have that. <laughs> yes. Maria, am I right in recalling that you have a British connection as well, ancestry that was involved in witchcraft or something? I'm a bloodline witch on my mother's side. So, I mean, if you want to go into all of that, it's, it's I traced my mother's side all the way back to the Barry St. Edmunds witch trials and where they left. Uh, yes. They left to come to New England. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't have record of them being involved in the Barry St. Edmunds witch trials, but I traced them to that area. And they left around 1640, which was right around the time of the trials, and went to New England. What did uh, what did Britain mean to you as a kid? Are you slightly too young for the British invasion? Were you? No, I wasn't. I wasn't too young for the British invasion. You know, my mom loved the Beatles. We had Rubber Soul that played in our house all the time. And of course, you were listening to the American versions, which were different to the ones we're used to. You had Rubber Soul without Drive My Car on it, which seems unthinkable almost. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe that's what the version we did have. Yeah. Yeah. Your elder half-brother was Brian McLean of Love. Yes. And yes. so by my reckoning, you were about three when Forever Changes came out. So do you remember yeah. much of, of his career? What You've got memories yeah. of, of him yeah. being in the oh, band? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Brian was a fish. It was, you know, by blood, he was my half-brother, but I don't think of him as a half-brother at all. We were extraordinarily close, closer than any two siblings can be. We were more like twins. He moved back home when I was a kid, so I grew up with him. I was one of those kids of, you know, of the 60s who was dragged around everywhere. The castle, the house in Laurel Canyon that they lived in, the parties, the whiskey a go-go. Vaguely remember little snatches, sort of cinematic sort of visions that I have. So you were seeing it with him? Yeah. Well, I remember when I when the Doors movie came out, there's those scenes at the whiskey with the girls dancing, to, dancing in the cages, the go-go dancers. Mm. In the cages, and I would have flashbacks, and I'd, I, I go, oh yeah, I remember that. You know that that feeling. I know that feeling. I yeah. know what that what it means to look at that. Yeah, what it feels like to look at that and see that and experience that. And uh, and how was he at that point when he moved back home? Because didn't he go through um, a sort of a conversion of some kind at, at that stage? Well, yeah. I mean, he was he got you know he was a drug addict. He he was untreated, um, uh, very sadly untreated bipolar one with psychosis. You know, he would go in and out of binges, drug binges, and alcohol binges. And um, during a particularly bad drug binge in New York, he uh, found Jesus. At right around the time my entire family did, which is really interesting coincidence. <laughs> and my mother, uh, you know, bloodied her knees praying for my brother's life because she knew he was on drugs but didn't know how to contact him. Mm. And um, she, you know, he came home and he came home with a Bible under his arm. And uh, they started going to this 
Baptist church. I was sort of raised in a born-again Christian cult um, that we were all a part of, even though my brother's <laughs> drug and alcohol binges continued, because sadly they didn't have really, they hadn't really discovered how to treat bipolar uh, in a way that would prevent somebody uh, with a diagnosis from going on and off the meds because lithium was such a strong drug. Was anyone else in the family bipolar? Anyone else diagnosed? Uh, my mother had mental illness, not bipolar. My father was probably rapid cycling a bit like me. I have a, a sort of very subclinical kind of uh, diagnosis. Um, right. And then my, my, and my, my grandmother and my grandfather, I think, were both, both had, had diagnosis as well. And is everybody, does this lead to creativity in everyone as well, is what I'm interested in? Well, I mean, that's, that's the age-old question, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that can, I'm sure there's plenty of theses being written about that, you know, I mean, about mental illness and creativity. And, you know, my brother was extraordinarily gifted. He had a very, very intense spiritual practice that was, you know, when you were around it, it, you were transported to another sort of plane of, you know, something, something that was not of this world. Was he making any music at that point? He made like like uh, religious music uh, that was very elevated and uh, important. And, and did he disown what he'd done before with love at all, or, or was he no. still he was still proud of it? When we started playing music together, he put a band together and did some songs from the olden days. At what point did you realise that uh, that you could sing? Um, I think when I was a kid and I used to watch The Little Rascals on TV from the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And um, they used to do, to do like the Follies. And I learned the songs and used to sing them. And <laughs> I sounded pretty good. And I, I remember being in Sunday school and the... Sunday school teacher was playing the piano and I started to sing and he brought me up in front of the class and made me sing over and over again and was just staring at me gleefully. I didn't really understand why. Um, Yeah. You filled out a questionnaire about uh, sort of musical history uh, that I give to all our guests and you said under first love you put Judy Garland. Was that because you empathised with her as as a fellow child with a big voice? Yeah, I did. I did, you know. She was, yeah, she touched me. Now I can't really listen to her. It's too painful, but. It is extraordinary hearing, hearing that voice come out of a child, isn't it? There's something supernaturally lived uh, about it. And, yeah. and it, it's, it's, it's so deeply felt. Yeah. Trauma, you know, it's. <laughs> mm, yes. I think it's really sad that a lot of the pop star behaviour that we've taken for granted over the years and the things we've come to mythologise in music journalism and everything is probably what we're witnessing is, as you say, the result of trauma and, and probably mental illness, did we but know it. And, and, yeah. and, and it's likely that, that they didn't know it either, the, the, the artists themselves, you know. And yeah, most of them, yeah. So much of what we've taken for granted as as pop star behaviour yeah. is, is probably something they should have had treated or been getting help for. Well, I mean, you 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 pair that up with going on the tour and being on the road, which is the mo- which is the most destructive environment you can imagine. 
I've always thought Amnesty International should be told about Turing because it's some like weird advanced torture technique, isn't it? You know, let's take this vulnerable person and drive them around yeah. for 23 hours, uh, you know, in anticipation of some event. And everywhere they go, there's going to be alcohol, free alcohol available. And then they, they are on stage for an hour in which everybody screams at them. And then they come off yeah. to to their own company and more alcohol. Exactly. And, you know, it's just and terrible. Try that being the only woman on the tour with a bunch of fans. <laughs> yes. Hopefully things will change. There's so much more, uh, many more conversations about it. Um, there's a great book that just came out called Bodies, which is uh, by Ian Winwood, which is about uh, sort of trauma in the music industry amongst artists and the pressures that you're under. Um, have you found that it's been changing for you, Maria? Well, I'm retired, so I do exactly what I want to with my life every single day. You know, if I make another album, great. If I don't, great. You know, I'm not going to tour ever again. I might do the odd gig, but I don't even know if I want to do that. <laughs> you know, so I did do one show when I when we announced the release of Vision Nuova. I did a show at the Moth Club in, in London. <gasps> I love that place. You know, it was a, it was a benefit show for my for my funding platform, which is specifically for the trans community. And I have a lot of very young queer friends in London, and I wanted to really make space for them as it was a benefit for the queer community. And a lot of my old male fans uh, glued themselves to the front of the stage and uh, became became intractable, and it was very very frustrating for me. When I worked on The Melody Maker in the 90s, I can remember during, it was during the Riot Girl period and I think it was Huggy Bear wanted to do uh, a show where it was just all women in the mosh pit. And the men really complained about, oh, why can't we come down the front? And he said, come on, you can come down the front to any other show. Just let them have this one, for God's sake. That's very similar to what happened to me when I had, when, when, the, when like a 60-year-old white man on my Instagram said, I felt marginalized at your show. I'll <laughs> oh, get over it. Yes. You know, because I was saying queers to the front, queers to the front, queers to the front. Pointing out my my queer babies in the audience saying, can you see, can you hear, come up front, can you please make space for my family? And nobody would move. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, what I witnessed in doing the Right Girl thing was this phenomenon of people just denying somebody's experience. I remember there was a band called the Voodoo Queens and the lead singer, Angeli, was an Asian girl. And she said, if I walk down the road eating a sandwich, uh, people inevitably will pass comment, say something like, you'll get fat love and possibly say something racist. And I just can't operate without being having abuse hurled at me all the time. And there were guys on the, on the, on the newspaper who just went, no, that doesn't happen. No, 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 she's lying. You know, you go, <laughs> why would you lie about that? What What's the benefit of lying? The benefit is to tell you the truth of that. You, you know. get that all the time. You get that pictures or it didn't happen kind of thing. And yeah, uh, yeah it's again, it's just sort of, well, it's all for reaction. I've had, when all of this kind of came out and I would get on these fights on Instagram, et cetera, I had fans saying, oh yeah, I remember when you opened for you two at Wembley Stadium and there was a, there was a huge pot of young boys you know, uh, chanting obscenities at you. Things, it's, not, it's, it's actually nice mm. for me to have somebody qualify these experiences now. Yeah. Um, because yeah. it was just normal back then. Yeah, I spent the 80s in a band uh, with three boys and two girls in it. And it was good in some ways because we didn't subject ourselves to the sort of backstage leeriness that happens in, in other band environments. 
but uh, also it made me witness what girls go through when they go on a stage and you see the behaviour of men in the yeah. audience is quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Certainly back then they seemed to feel they had the divine right to aggressively leer at, at women on, on stage and, and comment on them and shout and behave appallingly. I agree with you, Jim. I think um, with the Me Too thing, I think it actually it's very strange. It caught some people, some guys on the hop, kind of like, well, I don't know anything about that. Okay, this is why we're having this conversation. But you do know. Because <laughs> you're ignorant. <laughs> well, I mean, I, it's interesting. Last night I watched, uh, for whatever reason, you know, it just happens to be her birthday today. So I had a little psychic moment, and and out of nowhere I decided to watch the Joan Jett documentary. Oh, yeah. Bad Reputation, I think it's called. You know, hearing her relay the stories of just being spit on and having things thrown at her mm. and the things that were written about the runaways um, by intelligent, so-called intelligent music journalists from yeah. the Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy. And I, I was just, it's just like pornographic. Well, I mean, the, the whole runaway situation was, was one of exploitation and abuse, wasn't it? Kim Fowley's uh, recruitment techniques and, and management well, I, I went to sleep last night uh, going down the rabbit hole about Rodney's English disco. Oh, my goodness. It was awful. Basically a trafficking hub for underage girls. And I remember Kim Fowley hovering around. I think he was a friend of my brother's. Oh, my word. Yeah, I remember him leering at, leering at me one time. But I was, you know, I was tough. Um, and uh, I was also very lucky. Very lucky, because I was a teenager hanging around the L.A. clubs, and there were still people like him hovering around, um, and even friends of my brother's from the 60s who had literally no boundaries when it came to sex with underage girls and, you know, uh, drugs and all of that. And I, I, you know, I came through it without being <laughs> molested, which I consider myself protected by something it's incredible really isn't it to think that for several decades sex with underage women was just taken for granted as a as a perk of the gig uh, for most male rock and rollers well i find it hard sometimes to listen to the stones or bowie or you know because you just it just it comes with that legacy mm-hmm. i don't know it just doesn't sit the same way for me now now that i know Joe, being part of prog, you must find yourself regularly in a very all-male environment. Is, is that right? Oh, God bless you, Jim. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> prog is quite male. Yes, I think everyone can agree with that. But there are strides and genres that are more inclusive. I, I did a series with a few women in prog, including uh, Jackie McShee from Pentangle. Mm-hmm. It was all about women in prog and from every angle. We didn't just talk about um, how we might be viewed by men, although we did go into it because sometimes you just get a blanket statement. Some men might say, I don't like women's voices. But really? <laughs> all women's voices? There's quite a range of them. Not everyone's yeah, like shrieking. Bizarre, isn't it? Uh, similarly, there are corseted divas who are out yeah. there. Uh, and there are also quirky, eccentric, unusual avant-garde people out there, which I love. So, uh, and in, in fact, I do believe, even in pop music, that some of the most experimental people are women at the moment. Oh, absolutely. Even yeah. from like Billie Eilish yeah, of course. to Bjork or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, we're represent- they're representing the progressive mindset and uh, uh, pushing music forward. So do you think uh, did becoming a music journalist uh, 
take some of the shine off music for you get to see the wizard behind the curtain don't you mm. or, or did it enhance your enjoyment of music do you think Oh, it's added to it, definitely. As, as you mentioned in your lead up for me, um, I tried my hardest to, to get it to try and do something around music um, when I was when I was 16. I was trying to get into record shops and because I didn't have a degree or 16, unfortunately, I had men telling me I didn't know enough about music. So I couldn't get a job there and I didn't have a degree. But so getting into the press. Yeah, it can be. You, you might know this as well, Jim. You're thinking, oh, uh, it'd be great to meet this person, but are they going to be an asshole? And mm. uh, I have to say, so far, it's been really brilliant. Also, I'm dealing with people who tend to be underserved in the uh, in the column inches. People who missed out on the enemy in the 70s kind of thing. Yeah, but I'm talking to big people, you know, like uh, Alan Parsons or, um, you know... Um, I was I'm chatting to the Moody Blues and it's like these are really, really big artists. They sold lots and lots of records. They're people of stature. There's nothing I like better than just going, let's let's just talk about you. Just talk let's start from the beginning. Let's talk about what you did. And I get a first hand account. I get to hear the stories of, of all my favourite records. Uh, you know, so I am still working in a record shop. <laughs> yes. So, Maria, I wanted to talk to you about Life is Sweet. Uh, we've covered it on the show. It's our most downloaded episode, as I said in the oh, intro. Oh, nice. And it wasn't even up on Spotify at that point, I think, but it's up there now, I believe. People who love that album adore that album, don't they? I know, I know. It's great. And it's accumulated some myths around it over time. So I wondered if you'd be up for answering some questions, doing a bit of myth-busting for us with some questions from uh, I've gleaned from other fans. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the first question is, you play all the guitar on that album, yes. don't you? Yes. Yeah, I went through a phase where I really wanted to be a lead guitarist. <laughs> because I have seen rumours that there are uncredited other players on that record. I don't know why anyone would want to start rumours like that, but you know how it is. Yeah, well, all you have to do is find a live video of me shredding, and yeah. that'll end that rumour right right away. Yes, I saw you play on that tour, and it was absolutely fantastic. And... Um, uh, one of my favourite pieces of footage is you playing Life is Sweet on the Hotel Babylon show. Yeah. Uh, that's a fantastic performance. That must be great that you've got things like that out there in the world to to show what you were doing at that point. It must be satisfying for you to have that there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a great, it's a great accomplishment. Great accomplishment. And that album continues to, to gather fans. Um, you know, I was talking about my goddaughter. One of her young friends is a Life is Sweet fan. It's probably 21 years old. She and her, her flatmates put Scarlover on and dance around the kitchen <laughs> and screaming at the top of their lungs. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's cute. It's cute. So, so here's another one. Um, is it true that the album was never properly mixed, that you went with rough mixes you'd fallen in love with? Oh, no, we worked really hard to get a good mix. I mean, well, it's, you know, because it's quite raw sounding, and that's, you know, Mark Freegard is... He was. He, he had a real sound. Yeah. Very, very that era. What, um, what's going on outside your window, Maria? Is there a mariachi band? Is it? That's my. It's <laughs> my. My goddaughter is. My goddaughter is. It, it can always ring through, even when I'm on Do Not Disturb. Ah. Her ringtone is. Um, is La Strada. <laughs> I, I don't know why. She reminds me of Julietta Messina sometimes in photographs. And so, for whatever reason, her ringtone is from Fellini's L- La Strada. Yeah. Oh, wow. I thought it was Coronation um, Street. 
<laughs> yeah, it does. It does. It, you know what? It does. It, it does sort of sound like that. It's a fine line between them. Fellini and Coronation Street. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm just going back to the album, when I we spoke about it with Tanita Tickerham and Peter Pafidis on, on, on the episode, we, we, we wondered if there was any misogyny involved in the way that album was received. You know, if a, if a guy had made that record, it would have been stone masterpiece, no problem, no questions asked, you know, but a woman doing it, being that strident and doing something that intense and it's, ooh, it's a bit, it's a bit much. Well, I think there's always misogyny involved in the music business, but, and how women are perceived in the music business and in rock and roll. But mm. for me, it was more about my past. And, uh, you know, I mean, PJ Harvey had made a, a you know, had, was making music like that and mm-hmm. being, you know, and had critical immunity. It had to do with my past. It had to do with the fact that I was promoted as, as a sort of sex symbol in the 80s by the huge commercial machine you know and show me heaven being a big power ballad and and you know all of a sudden i make an art rock record i knew what i was getting myself into but i had to do it without all of those reference points people can come back to it with a fresh ear and you know none of that context really makes a difference it's it's just about the music yeah absolutely and I think it sounds really fresh as well. I think it's one of those records that doesn't really kind of take you back to the moment that it was it was made. It could be made at any time. Really? Because I, I feel that yeah. of all the albums I've made, there's only two that are sort of rooted in, in time. And the Shelter album is, is very 80s yeah. in a way that I can appreciate now. And I feel that Life is Sweet is very 90s. Okay. It, it has a real 90s feeling. It, the 90s fine. are in. The 90s are in. So it's in. <laughs> <laughs> They're back, back, back. <laughs> Good. Um, let's go on to the questionnaires, which you very kindly filled in for me. And I wanted to start with you, Joe. Under the category record that took you a long time to get into, you've put uh, Trigger the Tale by Genesis and Misplaced Childhood by Marillion. Uh, which suggested to me that maybe you weren't the perfect fit for Prog Magazine <laughs> when it launched. Is that the case? Well, yeah, it's an interesting point because the thing is that I'd been assigned to it. I'd gone freelance and um, I'd, I'd come out of uh, working at Kerrang. So the world of Kerrang at that point is sort of Fallout Boy and um, sort of pop punk and um, called My Chemical Romance and people like yeah. that. Nothing wrong with those those things. But I'm getting towards I'm going to getting towards being forty and I need to do something else. I need to grow up. So uh, I came out of that and I started freelancing and I was working on certain titles and they booked me for this thing that was going to be four times a year. And when I started working on it, which is around my 40th birthday, they went, uh, I was working with, with Jerry Ewing, who's the editor, and I looked at the lineup of people and it was Roxy Music and um, it was Pink Floyd and um, it had all these people in it. And I went, oh, wow, yeah, that's, that's my record collection. Oh, oh, I'm prog. <laughs> kind of getting past the psychedelic rock, rock aspect, which I find very easy. I love all of that kind of sound. And I was still, I'll still head towards a psychedelic rock guitar. You don't tend to get that so much on Genesis because of the instruments being mainly around classical figures, you know, everything being a bit more strangely structured. That's why I came a bit late to Genesis, although I was um, I, when I was about 15, 16, their pop albums were occurring. And, it's, and Genesis is the first stadium gig that I go to, the Invisible Touch Tour at Wembley. And then when I tried Genesis a bit later, I was going, oh, oh ah, it's not quite at, no, because I'm listening to things like, I've gone through things like Nirvana. <laughs> yeah. And also I've been listening to things like, you know, The Kinks and Who and things like that. It doesn't quite fit into it. I interviewed Al Murray, the comedian Al Murray, yeah, yeah. Uh, for a record collection feature. And he loves Genesis. It's very well documented. 
And what he said to me made me listen to them in a new light, which was to say that they were a little bit younger than The Who, but they wanted to be The Who, but they couldn't be The Who because they were charterhouse public school boys, you know. They just didn't have that experience. And it wasn't until they got Bill Collins that they would be able to get a bit of that kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, grit to them. Uh, And having sort of armed with what he was telling me, he also said that Elvis was prog. That's another conversation for another time. Um, I kind of went back to Genesis and I started to listen to it with new ears. And weirdly enough, this is actually a very accessible album, Trick of the Tail, that I've mentioned to you. It was a very, very accessible album, but it hadn't gelled with me until I got a new perspective on it. So that's why that came into it. And I think also, weirdly enough, Growing Older, Misplaced Childhood by Marillion, is something that has it's so much emotion. It's so it's just trembling with emotion the whole way through. But I hadn't keyed into it at all. As a 40-year-old person working at Prague, suddenly I went, Oh my goodness, I'm getting this heartbreak. I'm understanding it. I'm afraid I never got beyond the fact that Marillion was so enthralled to Genesis early on. They just completely ripping them off, weren't they, the first records? Um yeah. I could I couldn't really get beyond beyond that. Uh, so I've never really got really enormous. Oh, this childhood. might be this might be a contender for another. You're not on the list. Oh yeah, maybe, maybe. I'll just go back to it. But uh, while you were talking there, I was thinking about um, Genesis "Supper's Ready," which is generally perceived, isn't it, in the to be the greatest piece of of, of prog prog music ever. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I think it's probably true. I think it probably is uh, the perfect encapsulation of that style and 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 that approach. And it's just got yeah. this fantastic mystique to it, hasn't it? It's got this ineffable quality that you can't quite work out where the magic is coming from, but it completely works, um, you know, despite its longers or whatever. Yeah, it's got something, but it, it's not easy. I mean, I got Trout Mask Replica quicker than I got Genesis. What's, <laughs> what's not to get about Trout Mask Replica? Well, there you go. It's easy. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, you can't hum in the bath, can you? <laughs> Really? I, I disagree. But anyway. Uh, it's it's the blimp, Frank. It's the blimp. You can do that bit. The mothership. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Maria, let's turn to the album that you've brought along today for us to discuss. It's from 2005. It's a posthumous release by Billy McKenzie. It's called Transmission Impossible. Uh, let's hear some of it, and then you can tell us all about your relationship with it. You know I'll never Of 
tell the best stories and tell. They say upstairs with Brando that he come round and you had with Monroe. Kenzie from Transmission Impossible. Maria was making sort of sighing noises all the way through that. You heard Blue It Is, Liberty Lounge and Winter Academy. Now, an uncharitable bystander might dismiss this as a posthumous ragbag of demos, but tell us why it's much more than that, Maria. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's just his voice, you know. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's otherworldly. It's utterly transporting. I mean, I... I think, you know, my friend produced this album and uh, maybe that's how I discovered it. Jude Rollins, um, who was great friends with Billy's. But I mean, I listened to it almost nonstop when I was conceiving my last album. And, you know, Billy didn't play an instrument. He would sing the parts into the, into the um, answering machine of his piano player. He knew, how, he knew how he wanted to, you know, wanted the arrangements to sound. You know, he's a tragic figure, but I don't want him to just be sort of remembered as a tragic figure, you know. But, I mean, again, you talk about Judy Garland, it's that, it's that voice, it's that, you know, he's extraordinary. How, how would you actually describe what it is that he does with his voice? Because I think there's some really interesting elements to, to what he's doing, like there's mischief and there's haughtiness. There's all kinds of different aspects to his delivery, aren't there? But yeah, but also, you know, he also has a glam rock sensibility as well. You can hear it on um, Satellite Life and, you know, so there's that in and the pop sensibility, obviously. But yeah, he's like operatic. So you say you knew the producer slightly. Do you, do you know happen to know how this record was put together? Because um, I was interested to know what the thinking was behind it, because these are like sort of nude versions, early, you know, scratch versions of songs that were worked up for albums that came out just after he died. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, it's, it's terrible. I can't, I, I'm not in touch with Jude anymore. Uh, he's sort of lost in America. I, I, I think it was just cobbled together from, from tapes that they found. You know, I can't remember the story. I should know the backstory, but I don't remember the backstory. Are you familiar with the finished versions of these songs? Do you know the way that they were 
you know, released subsequent to these to these sessions? No, I haven't. I mean, I love the Associates. Don't get me wrong, but this album for me is a, is a benchmark. So, I, I haven't really wanted to to hear to have another perspective on it, which is probably my loss. Yes. Yeah. They were extraordinary, the associates, weren't they? I worked in a record shop. It was a branch of Beggar's Banquet in about uh, the 1982 when the associates' records were coming out on the Situation 2 label, which was an offshoot of, of Beggar's Banquet. And we felt sort of encouraged to play their music in the shop. And it used to get, it used to get a very mixed reaction. Um, my feeling about them was they seemed to sort of take some beautiful ideas and purposefully uglify them. <laughs> you know, they'd often put sort of drones and skronks and noises that they didn't really need into the arrangements. And uh, Billy wrote lyrics a bit like that too. There was a sort of mischievous quality to his writing at that point. You know, a lot of it seemed to be, let's see if we can get away with this, you know, but they were extraordinarily creative as a as an entity. Were, were you aware of the associates at, at their peak, Maria? Well, through, through I wasn't aware of them back then, no. But, I mean, I just remember Jude always talking about Billy's whippets, you know. Oh, yeah, we inherited the whippets, you know, <laughs> yeah. these – these whippets that he was sort of godfather to, mm. you know, and uh, that would show up in the videos, the associates' videos. And I, my, well, you know, my husband and I have a whippet, so okay. uh, you know, so he has always sort of had that bond. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I did the wonder whippets. if there was a connection there. The, the whippets, the whippets of rock. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, but it wasn't. I didn't really get into Billy until I discovered, you know, started listening to this album. Now, I wondered uh, if there was anything uh, significant about the fact that you probably share very similar influences. He struck me as a Bowie, yeah. Scott Walker, Billie Holiday kind yeah. of guy. Yeah. And, uh, and that's very much your lane, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think that's yeah. part of yeah. it? Yeah. Certainly, yes. But do you think that's one of the reasons why, why, why you relate to him as a performer? Cla- he was a closeted queer person as well yeah. and, and back in the time when you could not come out, really. You know, and... Um, and can you hear that? I, uh, yeah, yeah. In what way? Yeah. What about it sort of says that to you? Uh, the, it's sort of uh, heartbreak and... Uh, uh, yeah. It's, it's, I don't know, the sensitivity and the, and the, and the dramatic sort of sensibility of mm. it. And the, the sort of singing to save your life kind of feeling. Yes. There's a, a nice little documentary about him which I saw recently and it... Again, there's a thing of the talking heads on it going, oh, he was so eccentric. Oh, he, you know, <laughs> he was a naughty boy kind of thing. And reading between the lines, you're thinking, no, actually, he was undiagnosed. There was something that, the matter with him, and maybe it would have helped him to have, to have known that in his life. One of the things everybody said is he, he sort of lived in his own sort of fantasy world in a way, he kind of make stuff up about people. Oh, so I didn't he, know that. he would say, like one of the musicians to, to the producer, he'd say one of the musicians uh, worked for the CIA or something like that, and he'd he'd go off on these sort of flights of of, of fancy uh, just to amuse himself. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that about him. Uh, and by all accounts, he had a very short attention span as well. He had a tendency to sort of get disillusioned with things, or or. You know, when something started to work, he'd lose interest in it and, and wander off. Yeah, well, that's, that's me. <laughs> ADHD. Oh, absolutely. I, I wondered if that was part of his makeup because he was very hyperactive and, and restless uh, yeah, 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 most yeah. of the time, by all, yeah. by all accounts. Yeah. 
and and when he died, his his auntie said his brain just crashed like a computer crashes. Mm, yeah, which I thought was a good way of putting it because he seemed to have this incredible mm. need to cram so much into this short life. Do you think this record works as a whole? Does it uh, hang together from end to end? Do you listen to it all the way through? Well, I mean, to be honest, I have my favourites that I just cycle over and over again, you know. Nocturne 7 and uh, This She Knows and Satellite Life and, you know. But I do, I do listen to it from start to finish because I think overall it's, 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 it's an extraordinary piece of work. It's peak. Some tracks are very empty, aren't they? Just piano and acoustic guitar and voice, and, and others have got more, uh, are a bit more elaborate. Like the the one we played, the Liberty Lounge, where it's sort of they've demoed it up as a as a sort of rocky piece with extra guitars and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, do you think those yeah. those help, or do they get in the in the way of of, of the thing as a, as a whole? I mean, for me, it's a, it's it's a body of work that stands on its own, and and whatever you know whatever is, is a part of that is, for me, perfect. The other albums that you nominated for this, you had Fred Eaglesmith's Dusty, uh, Ed Askew's For the World, and Donna Summer's Lady of the Night. Do you think they have anything in common? Do you think there's anything about them and this record that kind of hang together? Well, they're kind of, you know, there's a folk folk country element, even the Donna Summer record is uh, what I call her her country album, Lady of the Night. Um which a lot of people I don't think really rate as one of her more important records. It's her first record, that one, though, isn't it, Lady of the Night? I think it's the one she did uh, just before she went to went to Germany. Is it? I think so. Oh, I didn't know that. Nobody ever talks about that record. And then the other two artists my goddaughter turned me on to, and I was, I was shocked when I heard Fred Eaglesmith. I couldn't believe that I'd never heard of him. <laughs> yes. I was really struck by those records because they did remind me of the Billy album in some ways, and I wonder if you'd agree with this, that there's a kind of, a sort of a wistful insularity about them. There's something going on where it's somebody lost in their own world and having to deal with the kind of contents of their own of their own head uh, to a certain extent and, and bringing that to the fore in, in their work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I'm a loner, so... Yeah, I can I can identify with that. I I much prefer being on my own uh, than with people. <laughs> I I you know I don't know if I don't know. Sometimes I worry that it's not healthy, but uh, it's uh, it feels right to me. So that's probably why I gravitate. I mean, sometimes I feel like almost, you know, uh, uh, my reasons for not being in a conventional marriage where I live in a small space with someone is not so much about me being queer and polyamorous or whatever, but, but about just not really wanting to, to, sh- to share space with anyone, not really wanting to sleep in a bed with anyone, not really wanting to share a kitchen with anyone, not really wanting to answer to anyone. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just what I like. It's like what Fran Lebowitz says, uh, you know, it's great, it's great having a girlfriend for a few weeks until you start to hear her feet walking around in your apartment. <laughs> <laughs> That's trouble. <laughs> Joe, um, did you know this album at all? Had you heard it before? I did not. And I'm very, very pleased to have been introduced to it because it would be about 12, I think, when the associates were at their height. I thought the singles were brilliant. But then listening to the albums, it's like, ah! 
<laughs> Quite hard work, aren't they, the associates? Really hard work, Hyster- his- histrionic. Um, <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, again, I-, I-, I get Captain Beefheart more than I get the associates at times. So this was a-, a little bit of a revelation for me. It was sort of like, I went, okay, it's going to be Billy McKenzie. Oh, shit, it's going to be Billy McKenzie. But then I listened to it and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's soft and, and feminine. Uh, you know, it's described as torch ballads, which I, I I love. Also, his voice is very, very, very good, and I didn't appreciate it before listening to this. His voice is excellent, and some of the vocal arrangements, like on Nocturne 7, really lovely. Boy, can he hold a note. When he does uh, Wild is the Wind, he's... Uh, and it's not, and he's not over-Bowieing. Yeah. It's very easy. I've seen some, some uh, things like uh, some Bowie uh, acts... They're very tempted to do a Bowie. Billy McKenzie might have this influence, but he doesn't over over Bowie on a on a Bowie tune. Well, he's got a way stronger command of a note than Bowie, really, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's a fantastic singer, and I and this has made me appreciate him on on that level. Plus, these compositions are really really well done. Uh, shout out here to Steve. It's Steve Orngall who uh, wrote with him. Yeah. Uh, and I actually maybe dig into Steve's blog. He writes a little bit about his time with Billy, clearly very impressed. He'd known, he knew Billy for years and years. And when he got to record with him, it was always an experience. And uh, he could be really annoyed by him and really entertained as well, but always inspired. And that's where these songs come from. And I think he's a perfect accompaniment. It's, you know, there's times when he's working alongside Billy and, um, you know, there are quirks, should we say. Billy's mind is racing. All this creativity is just pouring out of him and uh, unedited. He does some annoying things that he knows he's going to annoy Steve by doing it. Like um, he'll say, please, and he'll do a false rictus for ages. Go, please. And Steve will be like, you're doing the head in now uh, when, they're, when they're trying to work together. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of respect and a lot of love between them. And they get, they get some really beautiful songs done. He could have done a Bond theme. And you played it just now, Blue It Is. That is absolutely epic. And then I found out that he wrote for Shirley Bassey. Is that right? Yeah. Do you know the Rhythm Divine? Oh, God. Yeah, he wrote that. No. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, what do you think of him as a writer, Maria? What what, what does he do uh, as a a composer and writer, do you think? I don't know how to deconstruct songwriting processes, Mm. including my own. I I just know what happens when I listen to the music and it just takes me away. Yeah. Yeah, because I think he's really coming into his own on this album. You can hear him... You know, as he got towards the end of his life, he was starting to be really much more confident in the song doing a lot of the heavy lifting. He didn't How f- old was he when he passed? I don't remember. 39. 39, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and if you think about songs like The Rhythm Divine and uh, and Breakfast, do you know that tune, Breakfast? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, a really strong piece of work. And yeah, I, yeah. And I feel you're hearing on this record as opposed to the associates, the genesis of someone who's who's got confidence in what they write now and, uh, you know, don't feel the need to scronk all over it uh, like, like, like the associates did. When they were debuting this material, they played at a party. His hair had started thinning and he was a bit self-conscious about it. He put it down to it had been uh, a peroxide accident, but he was probably just getting older and losing his hair. But what he did was he um, performed. So Steve's on the piano and he's standing up and he's got an Elvis wig on 
and uh, somebody in the crowd is from Scottish Telly and they book them. They go, oh, we must have this. They're doing what wild is the wind. We must have this on Scottish TV. It's called a show called Don't Look Down. So he he performs on that and he's still got the Elvis wig. And from there on, it's it, it, the song becomes Wild is the Wig. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, oh could, uh, he always rocked a good hairpiece and a hat, didn't he, Billy? Splendid. Well, uh, Joe, let's bash on to uh, your selection, uh, your choice for today. And you've picked the debut album by Fairport Convention from 1968. Uh, let's hear some of it and then you can tell us all about it.
first fruits of Fairport Convention, 1968, the self-titled debut album. You heard Cameron, Jack of Diamonds, Chelsea Morning, If Stomp, and Time Will Show the Wiser. Good stuff. <laughs> yes. Joe, those clips will probably surprise anyone who hasn't heard them before because this record doesn't really follow the path Fairport became famous for, does it? No, not at all. And what we're hearing there is a bunch of teenagers who are really influenced by Maria's scene of the West Coast, psychedelic West Coast. They've got a slightly older person, Ashley, Ashley Hutchings, Tiger Hutchings, who is a grizzled 22 year old. Yeah, a grizzled 22-year-old. He's got an American girlfriend. He knows a bit of stuff. He's he's a fount of knowledge. Uh, he's got loads of contacts. Um, he just wants to play lots of music, but he finds these compadres in Muswell Hill and he's able to bring them all together and create something really energetic and exciting. When did you first hear it? Uh, our friend and colleague, Lois Wilson, I was in her house when she lived in South London and I noticed this CD on the side and I thought, oh, what's that? But then I sort of parked it for about 20 years. <laughs> and then uh, I, I became friendly with Judy Dibble, who's the first uh, singer uh, from Fairport who's on this album. And that was because she became proggy. And uh, she had uh, released a few albums that were along the lines of sort of extended uh, pastoral and slightly orchestrally augmented progressive ballads, I suppose, and a bit of jazz in there as well. And she'd come to the, to the uh, magazine with her manager to ask us if we could do a bit of coverage. And we were like, oh, yeah, let's hang out and, and see what you're about. We like what she was doing. We went, I did, went and did a feature with her. And then I was like, I should listen to what she what she did with Fairport and of course it was right up my street oh my goodness it was it was so up my street I was living in every house I thought wow this is really great because there's life before Sandy Denny and Sandy is absolutely amazing she is amazing mm. but this is a really great starting point and also if you like that 60s psychedelic guitar sound which I do it is there in uh, large amounts large doses and it's incredible how distinctive Richard already sounds at this point isn't it yeah, very much so. I, I got to see him recently. I went to Crockery Festival. The first time I went was with Judy. Uh, that was about um, nine or ten years ago. She would go as a guest. You know, a couple of times we've seen Richard playing there. Back in the day, they were sweethearts, very briefly. The most innocent of, of dating, apparently. And they made a little bit of music together. You know, she saw him sort of starting to play firsthand. And we, if you go and see Richard Thompson now, it's pretty edgy stuff. It's not necessarily the the, the, uh, the wrong notes, but it's the right notes in the wrong order. <laughs> and it does go wild. It's really wild. And there's a, on one of the, the, the tracks even, if you hadn't heard White Light, White Heat yet, and that was the wildest guitar solo, I think you might think this is the wildest guitar solo you've ever heard because it is everywhere. Oh, yeah, that's on the incorrectly titled One Sure Thing, isn't it? It was the <laughs> strangest guitar solo. It's really sort of far out to the left and just goes all over the yeah, place. Yeah, definitely. You yeah. just go, what is happening here? But the, you know, when you see him play, it's because he just seems to go, right, what are my hands doing? I'm just going to let them do it. So you've got this wild sort of Jefferson Airplane-style uh, psychedelic rock to them. And also just the lovely sound of young people, really young people making music and finding out how to make music. Yeah, we should say that um, Ashley was, as I said, was 22, but the rest of them, um, I think Ian Matthews is 21 and the others are all 18 and a half, except for Simon, who's 17. Yeah, it's incredible, really. Isn't but they're it? actually really good and, and quite sophisticated, yeah. and they've got a great catalogue, which involves Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, 
they they were a covers band like many of these these uh, bands at the time playing sort of like pubs in in the local area their version of Suzanne I know it's later but their version of Su- Leonard Cohen's song Suzanne is one of That's my all-time right. favorite uh, records they are very good at their cover versions and yeah. you just had a little snippet there of Chelsea Morning which is really brilliant and uh, Time Will Show The Wiser is an Emmett Rhodes song the first track isn't it yeah now that's a great opener that gets you right in you want to make a statement and that gets you right in well they're definitely fans of the birds that's clear from sort of like the way that they treat Ian Matthews voice and some of the tunes here aren't they and it wouldn't surprise me Maria if they were also fans of of love as well because there's definitely a feel of that side of electro rock here yeah well, probably yeah. they definitely said that anything that was on the electro label they were into so they yeah. were listening well then well then there you go yeah, so they'd be listening to love the doors they loved all that west coast sound well of course joe boyd was the um british director of electra so he'd get all those records sent over so i know he played them to the young Fairports, because he he told me so. <laughs> so they'd have oh, been there you go. they'd have been aware of 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 all that stuff on on Electra in that period. And the the Joni Mitchell songs that they cover here, I don't think had been released by Joni at that point, because those were the days when you could pop down to Feldman's or whatever and listen to Bob Dylan's demos from the basement tapes that he hadn't recorded yet. You know, again, what have you got in a sort of folky style? Oh well, we've got this kid from the US. You know, so they they had sort of early access to all this incredible material from from all these top top notch oh artists God. That's a, that is incredible yeah. that is incredible so you know you can hear a real gamut of influences initially they were in a, a band called ethnic shuffle which is a jug band and and i think that one of the tunes which they, they've got which is if is very loving spoonful and of course they would have you know jugs were big in those days yeah. um I, I mean listening to it i, I that's like it coming down a time tunnel at me, but it's the genesis of so many interesting things. You know, the genesis of of, of the the Fairport to come, the genesis of Richard Thompson and folk rock, and you know where where it's going to go from there. Yeah, they really try a bit of everything on this record, uh, don't they? Uh, Maria, did you know this album at all? Were you aware of it? No, I mean vaguely some of it, but I don't, I don't know anything about the really the pre Sandy. Yeah, I, 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 this is the first time I've heard of that singer. Yeah, I mean it's it's odd, Judy, isn't it? Well, obviously, compared to what was to come with Sandy, the power and emotion that she brought to the, the thing, it, it is quite a plain voice. But Joe Boyd said he didn't think she fitted in with the rest of the band, and I would disagree. Listening to this record, I think in context she uh, she fits in rather well. She seems to be quite a good blend for the rest of the the band sound. Yeah, she's eccentric as well, actually, because she play, she plays. <laughs> if you listen to the whole record, you're kind of going, "What's that now?" And uh, it'll probably be her on recorder. She does some quite avant-garde recorder work. So you knew her. Did she ever talk about being let go from the band? She did. Yeah, she did because it was uh, it was uh, you know you're young. This is the thing you say, like you say, they're eighteen and a half. This is a, uh, this is not quite the same, but similar uh, vibe to other young bands that have. Um, traumatic things and difficult things that happen to them when they're young they don't talk about it <laughs> uh, you know like um, Joy Division with Ian Curtis it's like he died they went mm, what are we going to do oh we'll just carry on we'll just ignore it and later on they go we should have talked about that she was really these were her friends <laughs> yeah. and suddenly she's not in the band anymore but she then gets another opportunity because she has been noticed um, and there are people who really love her, her voice and she 
gets um, sort of picked up and put into a duo with uh, Jackie McCauley from them, and it's called Trader Horn. Oh, yeah, Horn. Uh, Trader Horn, yeah, yeah. That's a great record. Yeah, a lovely psychedelic folk pop, um, bit of a cult classic there as well. Mm. I don't know if she ever thought it was going to be a career for her, but she liked music, she liked creating music, she could write music. Uh, she wants to sing, and she that's what she, she carried on doing. Eventually, she did have a bit of time off uh, to be a mum, and to run a tape business with her husband, Simon, who was a very flamboyant kind of character. He was a DJ and he ran a record record shop. And uh, when he, he died, she then went back to making music very uh, tentatively to begin with. But it was actually rave music that she started with. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, Mark Swordfish from Astralasia said, oh. oh, do you want to join in on some of these things? And she ended up kind of doing rave covers, psychedelic <laughs> uh, electronic covers of things like See Emily Play, as well as her own com- her own compositions. Oh, that's great. Um, it's, no, it's really worth checking those out. So her voice is great. And then eventually she's back in. Oh, she does make it. She made a really fantastic psychedelic album with Andy Lewis as well called Summer Dancing. And uh, that was for Acid Jazz a few years ago. Uh, Maria, you're a big fan of British folk rock, aren't you? I remember you telling me um, that it, it really inspired your last album, La, La Vita Nueva, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was listening to a lot of Sandy. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Richard and uh, Linda, obviously. Shoot out the lights. And I, you know, and I covered a song and worked with Richard on my first solo record. Who did you? So, yeah. Yeah, he played uh, guitar. Um, mm. on a song called Breathe and also on, I think he played on Am I the Only One Who's Ever Felt This Way? Yeah. And how did you first come across Sandy? It was probably Marvin from Lone Justice. He turned me on to a lot of music when I was a kid. I didn't really have a huge vocabulary yet. I think he's the one who brought Fairport Convention to the house and told me about her. Um, but then I just, you know, I go through phases where I listen to somebody over and over and over again. Mm. And uh, I think I was listening to her a lot when I was writing the last record. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to describe what it is about her that I love. It's just, you know, her voice is, it's very layered. I think there's an enormous amount of emotion in Sandy Denny. Sometimes I can't handle it. Well, yeah, I mean, there are some singers that I can't listen to because it's too painful. Judy is one of them, Billie Holiday. Uh, but Sandy, for some reason, even though there's a lot of pain there, I can handle it. Maybe because there is that English reserve. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I, mean, I suppose, yeah, because she's she's using folk, the folk milieu as a, as a kind of a shield, isn't she, in, in some yeah. ways? There's um, a protectiveness there. Yeah. Sort so, of built in. So she's tapping into sort of history's pain. Uh, r- rather than her own. Uh, oh, yeah, she's well, you definitely can hear her personal pain, but it's just a little bit ever so slightly reserved. Yeah. It's kind of like what Bowie did with his theatricality. It was a way for him to distance himself, you know, when he sings about like the Bewley brothers or whatever, you know, there's, a, there's an avant-garde theatricality there, which sort of Judy, you know, was obviously very theatrical, but she could not, it never worked as a buffer to sort of protect us from her agony. It just made it even more apparent. Something I, do, something I like about Sandy as well is how well she, she, well, she's the only person they've ever used as a collaborator. I think the only female they've had on a record as well, Led Zeppelin. So when she collaborates with Led Zeppelin, it's absolutely stunning as well. There's something, 
she's coming from the the ether. She's the I don't know, like the, the goddess appearing from the ether. She's the bustle in the hedgerow, isn't she? She's a bustle. Yeah, she put a bustle in my hedgerow. <laughs> <laughs> I. Uh really grown to love this record i used to have a copy of it a budget copy that polydor put out in the 70s um which i didn't listen to much i'd come into fairport via the history of fairport convention which was that double album that island did which is fantastic and is so rich because it's got tracks from every album um that this really couldn't kind of hold a candle to it at that point so i, I didn't really listen to it at the time but listening to it now as its own discrete thing i think it's really good and yeah i just keep coming back to how young they are on this record as well i mean the sophistication of what they've chosen and the material they're drawing from and the way they pull it together um i think it's quite extraordinary for for what's basically a bunch of teenagers there is a great story as well of uh, they one of the gigs that they played jimmy hendrix was on stage as well and uh judy she's such a unique character she used to get really bored by richard thompson solos so she used to just potter off while he was doing stuff and, and, and busy herself and she she used to knit string uh to make dishcloths and uh one time richard and jimmy were jamming and she's at the side of the stage knitting a dishcloth <laughs> that's brilliant that's her rock and roll story yeah. <laughs> yeah never mind partying with the band or anything like that she's just like i'm a bit bored i'm making a dishcloth over here i love that uh, she was very um she used to get very pissed off when anyone asked her about vashti bunyan didn't she <laughs> she did yeah <laughs> she did. people keep asking me about vashti bunyan what's all that about vashti bloody bunyan yeah <laughs> And some, someone else that she had a little connection with was Arthur Brown, because Arthur Brown was doing the rounds at the time. And yeah. uh, they, she smoked uh, when uh, at this point. And uh, she was often sort of like around at gigs when he was there. And he was doing the whole I'm the God of Hellfire uh, shtick. Mm -hmm. But he needed someone to light his hat, you know, the, the dish that he kept on his head that eventually probably made him bald. She would be the person to do that, but she'd have to kind of get on a stepladder to do it. She's tiny and he's about seven foot tall. So she lit. I oh know this is, could be the title of a new, another biography. She's already had one out, The Accidental Musician. This could be I lit Arthur Brown's hat. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, baby, light my hat. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Good. Let's uh, move on to my choice, which is somewhere in this vicinity. We're in a slightly folk rock place, but we're going somewhere else as well. It's released the same week as Abbey Road and in the court of the Crimson King. So I'll give you some idea of where we are in rock history as you listen to the debut album, self-titled by Renaissance.
That's Renaissance, Renaissance from 1969, and you heard Kings and Queens, Island, and two excerpts from Bullets, which is like a sort of 11-minute adventure at the end of side two to finish off. Wow, that's bananas. Yes. When, when, the, vo- when the vocals kicked in for the first song, I got real well, Here Come the Warm Jets vibes. Oh, uh, yeah, Ryan yeah. Eno record. I, I yeah, what, I know Ryan Eno record. And by the end, Ligeti. Yeah, Ligeti, but then also kind of the fifth dimension. Oh, yeah. Um, well, look, I picked this record because it's one of the very first albums I owned. I was a kid when it came out, about 10, and I heard them play on Radio 1 in concert in, must have been around October 1969, presented by John Peel, who I'm pretty sure introduced them with, please welcome the very excellent Renaissance. I was transfixed by it, and I think I asked for it for Christmas. So I must have had this and Abbey Road the same year. Oh, my God. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, looking back, it, it represents a fascinating juncture in music, I think. The the end of the pop decade and the start of a, a, a of rock and a kind of changing of the guard. This is the sound of members of 60s blues bands, mostly the Yardbirds, uh, getting to grips with the waning of the sound that they'd pioneered and working out where to go next. Uh, when the Yardbirds split, Jimmy Page hung on to the brand, of course, and turned them into Led Zeppelin, taking blues rock somewhere. Definitive. Led Zeppelin 2 came out uh, roughly the same time as this, uh, funnily enough. But most of the Yardbirds went on to do this. Paul Samuel Smith is producing, uh, Keith Relf uh, is singing, along with his sister Jane, and Jim McCarty, the drummer, is uh, is playing drums and co-writing the material with Keith. And the idea, I suppose, was to do something that mixed elements of classical music, flavours of Bach and Mozart, with a hint of folk music too. So you've got a uh, new bass player, Louis Serrano, is doing quite complicated bass parts. And uh, the sort of classical flavoured piano is by John Hawkin, formerly of the Nashville Teens, uh, who did uh, that uh, hit version of Tobacco Road. Uh, so they're sort of tonally staying pretty much in the vein of a piano-centred blues quartet. I mean, some might say it was a flawed experiment. It's not a perfect record by any means. In fact, objectively in places, it's a bit silly. And funnily enough, I felt that, sort of straight away even at the time um, but I love it for its weaknesses as as much as its strengths I love the sound world of it and I love the way that they kind of react to one another it was recorded at Olympic using that dry 70s sound which was quite new at this point I suppose Paul Samuel Smith would go on to do those the the Cat Stevens records and there's a bit of that feel about it that sort of dry presence but then goes off into that strange kind of choral thing at the end as well there's a track from this album on the famous island sampler uh, album Bumpers uh, nestled among uh, Fairport Convention's Walk a While and The Sea by Fotheringay and it fit right in with that sound but also I think it's a proto-prog record it's a very early prog album Hello did you call? (laughs) (laughs) Yes almost a parody of what prog would become infamous for if you think about it with Icarus on the cover and songs about kings and queens and jesters and bits of bark thrown in for class yeah but um there's more to it than that I mean that last song bullet which you just heard some snippets of it's a really curious 11 minute freak out that starts out as rather dark and foreboding then goes into a funky Dr John voodoo thing then there's a blues rock bit with some wailing harmonica by Keith and a bass solo and then finally that rather chilling choral ending with a tolling bell under it so there's lots of ideas going on in this record um, and there's a sense of it, the album being sort of conjured on the brink. They're, they're trying something. They're asking questions. They're trying to build a boat that will withstand the future. They're wondering where this idea might lead. And, and for whatever reason, it, it led nowhere. I know there's a recording of them live at the Fillmore in the US that recently went up on Spotify. So they definitely toured. They definitely got into some rooms, presumably because of the Yardbirds connection. 
but for whatever reason, the public weren't gripped by it. There was a second album released in parts of Europe called Illusion, uh, but only a few tracks on that are by this lineup. Uh, the rest was by an almost entirely different group of people, and therefore that record didn't really hang together, which is why it never properly came out in the UK. But that second version of the band is what morphed into the hit making renaissance that came later i don't really know how and why that happened i presume it had something to do with management because they kept the same name and the recipe in some ways they did follow it the this album isn't a million miles away from some of the later renaissance records like ashes are burning uh but for whatever reason i i never got into those um if nothing else this album i suppose stands as an epitaph for, for keith keith ralph the last decent thing he did really but uh you know he was electrocuted by a faulty guitar and died at the age of 33 um you know really tragically early and he's one of those unfairly forgotten figures of pop the Arsbirds lost out slightly i suppose by being the kind of band that kicks the doors down and watches others walk through it and become more celebrated and you could argue that Keith did that again with this record in some respects, uh, you know, out the same week as uh, In the Court of the Crimson King, often said to be the first prog rock album. And I'd say this has a good claim to the title as well, but uh, it's just not as well known. Uh, Joe, as our esteemed prog correspondent, can you appreciate the nascent progness of it? Oh, very much so. I can, I, I, I can indeed. For me, Renaissance, the sound of Renaissance is with Annie Haslam and it is Northern Lights because I was a, a, a relatively young person when that came out. But it's really great to dig back into bands' histories when they've had um, many records out to see how they evolve and change. And of course, because I like hard rock and heavy rock and I like Led Zeppelin and things like that. And I ran a club in the 90s called Blow Up. And that came was named after the film Blow Up, which had the Yardbirds in it. Yeah. Oh, yes. So I got my head around the Yardbirds and what a spectacular recruitment agency they were for, for bands to come. And then you see that they did the change in direction here. Everyone seemed to harken back to some classical love that they might have had, maybe from school. I was talking to Ron Lodge from Moody Blues recently, and he just went back. He was talking about Days of Future Past, and he went back to when he was a kid at school and they used to have quiet times and so that was sitting in school listening to classical records the yeah. teacher would play them classical records and they and you'd have a bit of a classic you'd get a bit of a classical um grounding from that usually the planet suite by gustav holst absolutely all the hits <laughs> yes. yeah sansons carnival of the animals you know peter and the wolf peter and wolf exactly um so you'd, you'd have a grounding in some of these things um and uh it, for him it was the bombastic um 1812 overture always very exciting and you can probably hear that in some things maybe like uh, question by moody blues but um maybe some of these people are now bringing it through to kind of go Right, we know how to play this. We know how to do that. Why don't we have a little dabble with some Beethoven and some Mozart as well? And in fact, some of this is ba based on the uh, the patique. Hmm. Uh, and it coming slightly across like Bee Bumble and the Stingers <laughs> at <laughs> yes. some point. <laughs> yes. I think he does it well, though, John Hawkin, doesn't he? Oh, he's great. Um, you know, it's quite an interesting thing they're trying here or quite a daring thing of, of putting the classical stuff into it, but still rocking, still sort of pounding away like an old yeah. blues guy um, and yet going for these classical flavours. And then well, one, once or twice it feels a bit forced, but generally I think it's a worthwhile experiment that they that they conduct here. <laughs> and another thing I like about it is they haven't been able to do this so much with rock, but now they're br bringing women in. So they've got Jane in. You're starting to hear women's voices. Who sounds uh, quite like Judy Dibble, doesn't she? No. Got that sort of soprano-y thing totally going on. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, her voice is, is great. And the fact that she wasn't 
in any bands before that and she'd never done this before and what they're making her do <laughs> she's just writing to the challenge like all right okay i'll do that that last uh track is just so incredible you, you said absolutely you know dr john it's a bit italian giallo to begin with really groovy but cd aphrodite's child perhaps you know and then he got this kind of ridiculous uh sort of what is happening i'm lost in space it's 2001 it's ligaty <laughs> but it's also pointing perhaps to echoes pink floyd yeah I, I, 2001 came out in 1969 didn't it so i wonder if they'd had time to see it by the time they, they recorded that i wonder if it was directly influenced by that um maybe yeah no that's an interesting thought uh, maria what did you make of this record did you know it at all had you heard it before um, yeah, I, I no, I never heard of it. It's interesting. What year was it recorded? 1969. Oh, wow. And you bought it when it came out? Well, I asked for it for Christmas, yeah. yeah. How old were you? Ten. Wow, that must have been a mind blower. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> well, you know, minds were getting blown regularly at that point, weren't they? And every, all those records that came out at that time that we take for granted now as classics. Yeah. There were so many things to listen to at that point that were just extraordinary. Well... I remember Don Heffington, rest in peace. We lost him over a year ago from leukemia, but he was a drummer in Lone Justice. He told me the story about when he bought the Velvet Under, the first Velvet Underground, the banana, the first Velvet Underground record. And he listened to it once and he was so uh, disturbed that he put it under the bed for for like a year <laughs> and then... And then brought it back out again. And then it became his favourite record of all time. The monster under the bed. That's sometimes the way, isn't it? I'm not ready for it now, but I know I will be. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was, you know, he was a kid, you know, he was a little kid. Yeah, know? I mean, I have to say, I didn't listen to that track as much as the rest of it. Um, it I found it rather unsettling when I was younger, but it grew on me over time. But, I mean, you have to persevere with records when you've only got half a dozen in your collection, don't you? And I've just got, you know, some Island samplers, some Beatles records, Ogden's Not Gone Flake, uh, and this. And also, yeah, you just take it, you kind of take it for granted, I suppose. Uh, you don't think it's kind of extraordinary if, if you like it. Oh, absolutely. I remember, you know, when Brian moved back home, he used to sleep on the couch. During the summer, we would stay up really late and watch TV. We'd stay up and watch The Twilight Zone and... Second City and Monty Python reruns till like, you know, 12, 1 in the morning. And sometimes the TV would just remain on. And uh, one night when I was a kid, I was woken up by music, really strange music. And I was like, am I dreaming? What's going on? And I wandered out into the living room and the TV was on Saturday Night Live. And it was Devo. <laughs> and I remembered feeling like I was still asleep yeah. and or I'd landed on some faraway planet. I was just I was like I'd never heard or seen anything like it in my life. And what were they playing? Was it uh, Are We Not Men? We are Devo. It, yeah, I think it was. It was it was the most far out of their singles. Mm. So it was probably that one. <laughs> I, I've, I've often uh, considered this, but the postage is too much. You can buy a Devo Energy Dome from their website, you know, in, in the blue or the red. Um, but it's going to cost about $200 <laughs> to get to me. But I would love that. Does a Devo Energy Dome do anything? It's just a hat. No. <laughs> you, might, you, look, you can look like Devo. Yeah, it's a lot for just a hat, though, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the clock's looking at its watch, I'm afraid, so it's time for us to draw proceedings to a close. Thank you so much for joining me in this. Thank you. You're very welcome. 
And I've really enjoyed listening to your selections as well. Just a reminder for listeners that Maria McKee bought in Transmission Impossible by Billy McKenzie. Uh, Joe Kendall selected Fairport Convention's self-titled debut album. My choice was Renaissance by Renaissance. That's it. Thank you once again for joining me. Uh, Lovely talking to you both. And until we meet again, to you and the listeners, bye-bye. All right. Thanks, Kim. Take care. Blessings. Bye. Bye. And don't forget, you can hear all the music we've been talking about today, including all three albums in their entirety, by going along to our Spotify playlist. Just search for You're Not On The List, Episode 7, Season 2. And if you have any comments or queries about the show, uh, feel free to visit jimirvin.com, where you'll find a contacts page from which you can send an email directly to me. Or you can leave a message at the Anchor FM webpage for You're Not On The List. And one of those flooded in from Diane just yesterday. Love your show. Thank you so much. I found so much to listen to in just one episode. Thank you. Well, thanks, Diane. I'd love to know which episode you were listening to. And regular correspondent Tim Adkin has weighed in on the subject of bands that were wiped out by punk, which I mentioned in the last episode, talking about the likes of City Boy. And he writes, I saw City Boy in the summer of 76, sneaking into an end-of-year bash at Birmingham University. They were very confident, but the gig ended in a mass brawl, either fueled by alcohol or the hapkido kid. Bands swept aside by punk include Crazy Cat, Wally, Quantum Jump, Cafe Jack and The Movies, uh, to name but a few. And The Movies all backed Joan Armour trading for a while, including when Joan supported Cecil Taylor at Ronnie Scott's, yes really, in 1975. And he goes on that Tom Gray was right to highlight Joan's debt to Van Morrison, but missed the most obvious tell that Down to Zero, the LP's first track, commences deliberately with the opening chords to Into the Mystic. And uh, despite owning it for now on 50 years, John Cale's vintage violence still mystifies me. And it's a shame that Garland Jeffries, who sings, plays guitar and wrote one song, didn't get a mention. Still play his album Ghostwriter. Yes, I'm sorry about that. I edited our little conversation about Garland out of the episode, I'm afraid. But yes, he played quite a big part on that record uh, as part of the band that backs John Cale, who were called Penguin. Uh, Thanks very much for that, Tim and Diane, and uh, keep them coming. Anything that uh, you want to add to our conversation, feel free by sending me an email or a voice message any that we like we will play don't forget to like or uh, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts uh, as that helps drive new listeners to us uh, for which we are eternally grateful if you're enjoying it tell your friends and come back next time for more you're not on the list bye bye